right, everyone. What is up? Good morning. Good afternoon. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories with an awesome guest today, Amanda Cassett. Thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories. Thanks for inviting me, Charlie. I've been a fan from afar for a while and super excited to be here. I'm really excited. I get more nervous when I have people that are fans in the show come on the show because then I they have higher expectations. So we'll do our <laughs> best. But it's cool because because you and I together, um, all of our listeners, especially a huge amount of input from them. I've really been loving it lately. You guys have been messaging me, asking me questions that I should ask the guests, giving me some good feedback. Some people have given me some some feedback that uh, I may not like, but I appreciate it. Some changes and I love it. I, I always need that. I always need to know how can I make the show better? What you guys think about it? You know, we're almost doing this. We're th doing this three and a half years now together through so many bull and bear markets. And we go back in time and look at the stories that were told. And it's like, ah, oh, we called that. Oh, like we knew that was going to happen or things that we talked about almost always ended up coming to be. And we're really lucky that uh, Amanda, you come, come to us from a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different perspectives. Uh, you were the uh, chief marketing officer at Consensus, really understand uh, Ethereum from, in a very deep way from 2016 to 2019. You hosted one of the first uh, crypto cultural events. You really understand why uh, through Ethereal, why culture is important. You you write all over uh, from, from places like Forbes and all uh, TechCrunch Disrupt you've spoken. Um, I've still never spoken at that event. I'm, I'm trying one day. Um, really kind of like showed people in, in South by Southwest, like what uh, NFTs look like in the real world. And now you founded a company called Serotonin, um, which is really cool because you're really helping Web3 companies, those who, who want to be in our industry, uh, kind of come to market from everything from the writing the right content, brand positioning, PR, community growth. So really understand a lot of the listeners in the show run their own companies, work for companies in our space. We all, I, I look at it and I hope you do too, is like we're growing this pie together. So I like teaching everyone uh, we're, we have another decade of growth before we can start competing with each other. We need to work together. The industry is still too small. We need to learn from each other. So I'm excited that, that you'll be able to teach us a lot of things today. How's your week going? Going amazingly. It's only, only Tuesday, um, but you know, every day in crypto is exciting beyond belief. So it's going well. How about yourself? It really is. No, it's funny. It's like, uh, you you know you're in crypto if there's something crazy going on. This morning, I'm listening to the Voyager bankruptcy hearing. In the first 30 minutes, they couldn't figure out how to get more than 100 people on the Zoom. So it's like we're still living in a in a Web 2 world or <laughs> Web 1 or whatever. And I don't know what's going on. And you we're, we're focusing on the macro. It's like, I feel like so many of us wake up in the morning and we get anxiety before we check crypto Twitter and all the markets. What's your like, what's kind of like your circuit? What do you what do you look what are your social places that you keep your finger on the pulse of the industry? Where do you what do you read? What do you check out? What do you watch? Yeah, sure. So I would say crypto Twitter is the place to be to understand what's going on in this industry. And people ask me a lot that are first getting into the space, what should I read? What should I pay attention to? And I generally tell them, because you need to say something. You need to start by understanding Bitcoin. So read Nat Popper Digital Gold. Then you need to understand Ethereum. So you should read Matt Leasing out of the ether. Then you should start understanding what's going on day to day. So I recommend people start reading um, Coindesk and Decrypt and some 
more niche outlets like The Defiant for DeFi and NFT Now for NFTs. But really, my recommendation is just to let yourself get addicted to the crypto Twitter algorithm and let it be your teacher. And so everyone knew coming into Web3 and serotonin, I always ask, who are you following on crypto Twitter? How much time are you spending there? Um, because that's that's really the best education anyone can get in this space, I think. Uh, we we had this conversation with the previous guest last week, uh, Adam Levine, who um, had the first Bitcoin podcast, Let's Talk Bitcoin. And we talked about the progression of like the uh, Bitcoin and then crypto town hall centers. So it started as like the IRC world and the Bitcoin talk forum, and then our Bitcoin on Reddit. But our Bitcoin kind of let uh, moderators be in control of like the censorship and the algorithm and things like that. And so for better or for worse, that didn't go well. I wonder why crypto Twitter became a de facto. Do you think it's because it has like just light moderation? I've spent a lot of time thinking about this too. Yeah. So I think, so first of all, the reason it was Twitter and Reddit, as opposed to let's say Instagram, is that we're a primarily text-based community at the core. Um, Our, you know, our original communicators are communicating in text rather than in images. So that's why we chose those platforms. Um, I think I think there's something about Twitter, the way there's just such a global audience and the algorithm can serve up your tweet to all these new people and they can discover you. That isn't really true of Reddit because the, you know, the Bitcoin subreddit is only going to be served up to people that are already navigating to the Bitcoin subreddit. Whereas with the Twitter algorithm, you can reach all these new people that weren't formerly in your circles and weren't searching for your type of content. So it ends up being kind of a, a, a larger, a larger, let's say, total reachable audience. So that, that would be my, my theory. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it does. And I, I even when I go in and change, there's a setting you can change from like latest tweets to all tweets. So it's like a little bit less mm-hmm. of the algorithm showing you what you want. It's still, it's still great. And I never feel, I follow a few thousand people. I never feel like overburdened uh, with content. So I definitely implore people to go check that out. You can actually change from latest tweet from, from home or something like that to latest tweets. And it will, and it'll, it'll show you a little bit kind of like more of a timeline, how Facebook used to be. Um, But I wonder if, if Twitter will lose that or if, will continue to have this this growth there or if people will will start to move towards like a web3 version of social media what does that look like some people yeah, tell me yeah. that it'll be like us holding individual nfts and and and, and you know joining these decentralized networks yes yeah, so so let me tell you a story I, I i had a friend who spent a lot of time becoming an influencer on facebook and really growing his page so that he could reach you know millions of people and that worked really well for his business now that audiences have moved off of Facebook, that does not work for his business anymore. And I think he would regret spending his time that way. The problem with Twitter and other centralized social media networks is that despite whatever time we spend building audiences there, those audiences aren't really portable. So when that platform dies off, which eventually they all do, right? Um, we can't move our audiences elsewhere without losing a big percentage of them. So I think at some point, someone um, would benefit from building a portable standard where people could move their followings across different networks. Um, That way, I would feel 
more comfortable investing more of my time building that kind of following, knowing that I truly controlled it, as opposed to trusting an intermediary company to allow me to access my following. And we've seen this a lot with censorship on these platforms where individuals have invested all this time in building these followings that then intermediated by these third-party companies, and suddenly they aren't able to reach these followers that are the source of their livelihood, let's say. Um, and that's, a, you know, to use a term from our space, certainly like a centralized point of failure for anyone that builds a business based on influence. I feel like Twitter has made overtures to its, you know, content creators showing that like, hey, we realize how important you are. They've offered different monetization mechanisms. Like you can super follow me for $2 a month. I still haven't figured out what value <laughs> I can give back. But there seems to be, at least there, hopefully they've realized it. A lot of other platforms, like you said, YouTube, even this podcast, you know, I get distributed wherever you can get your audio, but I'm at risk of Spotify or Apple or whoever just turning off my podcast, shadow, shadow banning me. It happened. It, it happens, uh, probably once or twice a year that you can't find this podcast on one of those platforms because of something that I said or whatever, maybe pissed off someone. But this is not new. This is not a new problem. And it's not new to you either. You worked at at, at the Huffington Post when there was that like big, uh, uh, it, not a uh, big conversation of the year actually was about, you know, journalists getting paid by how it all works. And you tried to start a company in there to, to change that. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So there was, and this is public information, and this was before I actually worked at HuffPost, but there was a lawsuit that was dismissed um, by Huffington Post contributors alleging, you know, that they had contributed this content to the platform, um, that they had allowed the platform to collect significant advertising dollars on the basis of their work, and that they had not been remunerated. Um, now, that case was dismissed, um, and Huffington Post also has a paid in-house, had at the time, and I believe has now, a paid in-house reporting team um, that looks like oh, nice. the, you know, the paid reporting team of any other digital publication. But, you know, a, a, a large portion of their traffic was coming from this contributor network that they've since shut down um, that had this that had this question asked about it, right? And so although they were operating with, according to, you know, the courts within within an acceptable legal framework, there's a different question of whether that's what content creators online want. Um, I think content creators online increasingly wish to be remunerated for their work and expect to be. And um, I think with NFTs and the idea of ownable digital spaces, we create mechanisms that are easier for them to monetize directly with their fan bases and collect not only value the first time an asset is sold, but all of the times it's resold uh, to collect those kinds of royalties. And I think with NFTs and Web3, there's really a better environment for creators to take advantage yeah. of, which does not mean that all creators will make money, right? Like a lot of the content on the contributor platform at HuffPost, a lot of the content on the, the platform of the company I started after that called Slant, um, the, the predominance of all the NFTs in the world have almost no value because no one wants to buy them because no one cares. And that's always going to be the case. The fact that NFTs and Web3 exist isn't going to make content valuable that isn't inherently valuable. But what it does do is provide like a substrate for creators to use to try to directly monetize what they what they do create and to stimulate the demand for it. Yeah. How many creators do we all know 
that are amazing that we almost shake our heads sadly knowing that just in the world that we live in, they won't ever make it. It's like sad. Like I have a friend, he's an amazing singer. Everyone go listen to AJ Smith on Spotify. Amazing. And I hope AJ succeeds. And, and actually, funny story, he was one of the bookkeepers for BitInstant, our first Bitcoin exchange like 10 years ago. So and now he's, he's singing, he's playing acoustic guitar, he's got amazing gigs. But on the current system, the current rails, it favors these large centralized siloed organizations like record labels and distributors and stuff like that. So when you do it on your own, it's a lot harder. Uh, he's embraced Web3 and it allows him to have this much better relationship with uh, his fans and, and at the same time gives him value that you can use. It's like, like you said, if you're a YouTuber and then YouTube tries to shut you off or your Discord or you're somewhere, it's gone. Like you're, you're, you, 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 you leave there. So it's like definitely uh, a problem on both sides. But I wanted to bring it back to journalism for a second um, because you still, uh, you're kind of sitting now on top of that, of that industry. And I want to get your opinion um, on, on, on where the, the, uh, how our journalists and how the media companies in our space are faring right now uh, from a perspective of like integrity and needing to be a check on our industry. We had Three Arrows Capital, Voyager, Celsius, all these companies, all this stuff blew up. And a lot of people knew that a lot of people knew about a lot of these things. And so my question was, where was our industry in, in helping root out some of these problems? Because uh, I feel like as cheeky and as, you know, crypto Twitter is with some of these journalists, they didn't find a lot of the problems that I personally have monies locked up in, in some of these companies. I haven't learned from my Mt. Gox days or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see a world in which media companies in our space invest in deep investigative reporting. I think that would yield some great stories. And, you know, we see that occasionally, right? We see we see a team invest the money to, you know, come up with one of these stories. But let's also respect that, you know, the journalism business model has changed a lot. Yeah. Um, and these are a lot of very new media companies. And so the idea that they would go out kind of Boston Globe style, uh, like from that from that movie that yeah. I'm thinking of and, you know, go through all the papers, break in at night to the 3AC office, go through all their papers, realize something that doesn't add up. I don't think these companies um, have the kinds of budgets mostly to, to do things like that um, because I, I'm not sure that it's actually lucrative enough to uh, to land those stories, especially in a world where it's so easy to aggregate those stories and to benefit from a lot of the traffic that goes to that storytelling, even if you weren't the one that made the original investment in breaking the yeah. story. I think so in, in our space, the media companies in our space are operating with traditional Web2 business models. Let's remember mostly, right? They just happen to be covering Web3. Um, so similar to other new media startups, um, they, they suffer from the, the pitfalls of how hard it is to monetize a media business in this day and age. Um, from, you know, the double spend problem online, from the aggregation model, from the fact that you're dependent on third parties like social media platforms for all of your distribution. Um, they're, they're in a tough spot along with the rest of the media industry. Guys, hot off the press, we've just negotiated with our epic new sponsor, Bing X, over $155 in free new user rewards for each of you. 
just check them out and click the link below and I'll explain to you who these guys are and why they're offering such an, an amazing award to our Untold Stories listeners. Bing X is a really cool crypto social trading exchange. They offer the usual like futures, spot, derivatives, all the good stuff that you guys like to do, all the cryptos and all the different coins that you want to buy. But they also offer a really cool copy trading service. And then you can see all their traders over the past few years, how they've performed, and you can simply copy their trading. They have over 3 million users, regulatory licenses in the can in Canada, USA, over in Europe, for, through Lithuania, Australia. They got one of the best ratings by 30K. So you know they're legitimate and they're gonna be uh, helping us out and offering you guys this amazing deal. Listen, if you click the link below, uh, there's a new user reward and an extra on top special link bonus. You're going to get $155 in USDT. The link has everything in there and they're even capping your losses up to $10 if you go in there and try to play around with the copy trading. BingX.com, thank you guys so much for sponsoring us. I'm excited to send some more videos and update you guys on their platform. It really looks nice, it's comfortable to use, you feel safe and secure. You get $150, $155 for free, so why not? Go check it out, BingX, thank you guys. Yeah, they are in a tough spot. I wonder what's going to happen to that to that future uh, to the future of them, like get gobbled up, merge with each other, figure out a way. I hope that you'll have more like the journalists themselves being able to be their brand and then be able to write for different media sources instead. But a lot of people like the opposite, where it's like more the economist, where everything is written by econom you know, the economist staff or whatever. So let's mm -hmm. see what happens. I, I, I want to move on from the subject. I want to go on to, to like 2015. Uh, so so the year is, is 2015. Ethereum is in its, in its infancy. It's in its early stages. A year or two into it, you get down the crypto rabbit hole. I want to hear that story. And you find yourself in 2016 at Consensus. Mm -hmm. And almost like, for those who don't know, Joe Lubin was one of the co-founders of Ethereum. And when he started Consensus, it was to use his new wealth to essentially be the, the branding and the startup acceleration and the fund and to give that support for this new, uh, this whole new platform. Paint us a picture. <laughs> sure. So, um, so I had this startup after I left HuffPost that was trying to fix the problem of how creators would get paid for online content. And so we were offering our creators 70% revenue share on the advertising that we served over their content. So we were paying them out and we were taking in 30% ourselves. The problem was that most of this content didn't actually make that much money. So in our business model, we found ourselves splitting the dollar and splitting the cent and paying out to these third-party transaction processors. So I got obsessed with payments. And I was trying to learn everything I could about payments, going to meetups in New York about payments. And I got introduced to Jobin, um, Andrew Keyes, Sam Cassett, with whom I incidentally now share a last name. Um, all kinds of things happen in the crypto space. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, so I got, I got introduced to, to this community. Um, I went to some of the first Ethereum meetups, just was so struck by how brilliant these people were. Coming from media and marketing, I wasn't able to perform my own kind of a priori diligence on the technology itself, but I could triangulate that these were the most brilliant people I'd ever met. And so I knew I needed to uh, drop everything I was doing as soon as I could and join the circus. And there weren't really marketers um, around the Ethereum verse at the time. Most of the folks in early consensus were either um, software developers, 
or there were starting to be a few business people. Um, so I was really the first kind of trained marketer there. And my mandate when I joined as CMO in 2016 um, was to tell the story of Ethereum and bring it to the world. And it was really cool because we got to collaborate sometimes with the Ethereum Foundation. We got to bring to market products like MetaMask and Infura and Truffle. We got to create all kinds of conferences and events and help grow the consensus brand. We helped grow the global network of Ethereum meetups all around the world. Um, and it was a it was just a very cool time. Um, we got to develop a lot of the best practices around Web3 marketing um, as they're as they're known now. Um, marketed a lot of the very first um, token sales, uh, some of the first NFT launches, actually live auction the very first NFT. It was oh, yeah. it was a wild time. Um, and every single every single startup that consensus funded illustrated a different use case for Ethereum. And so even if a startup failed, it would still illustrate that use case out in the market and someone would get inspired and start a better version of that thing. And so a lot of those projects succeeded and ended up going really well and are now some of the most used tools in the space. And even the ones that didn't ended up, you know, inspiring tens of other people who would then build their own similar products. So it was a very, very cool way to spend four years. Have we moved on from building crypto apps for crypto folks and now we're building and marketing for the rest of the world? Are we, where are we in that? Like if you go to FTX's Twitter, there's a commercial there with Tom Brady. Um, you know, we all we saw Super Bowl commercials for the <laughs> yeah. first time this year. No, it's awesome. Like I've been waiting for Super Bowl commercials for 10 years. It's definitely like an amazing thing. I'm just trying to figure out. And also as a personal investor and I fund, I invest with our fund. Uh, what are you seeing come out of serotonin? Are you working with still like like the MetaMasks and the Truffle that are that are building apps for crypto folks or now are we building out these like products that we can market to our grandparents so so it's it's all over the place um originally most of the value coming into the space was fiat currency moving over a rail like coinbase into bitcoin yep. people investing in bitcoin and now we see uh, value flowing into the space, not just through the, that main aorta and those main super highways, but through all these side doors and capillaries. Um, people that want to buy a particular NFT because they're a fan of a certain brand. People who are playing a game and want to buy an in-game asset. People that want to use a particular uh, DeFi protocol and open up a CDP. So there are all kinds of different users. Our industry was born of the two parents finance and technology. But yeah, since the then, it's intersected with the arts, intersected with entertainment, intersected with um, with the media. And so those kinds of people have come into our space as potential users. So it's not like we've stopped um, creating exciting new core technology products. One of our clients at Serotonin is Polygon. Um, and I really think that Polygon is making Ethereum infinitely scalable. And that's that next step for Web3 to achieve real adoption is, is getting past that scalability obstacle. So we have folks like that that we work with. We work with um, blue chip NFT companies like World of Women, like Kevin Rose's Proof Collective oh, cool. um, that produced Moonbirds, um, like CoCreate, which is a really cool project backed by A16Z 
which is a tool for NFT projects um, generating native tokens. We've also expanded a lot into the metaverse. Um, we end up communicating a lot and collaborating with, with Sandbox. We formally work with Decentraland and a lot of our projects want to build their own storefronts and their own activations in those worlds. So we find ourselves working in that context really regularly. We're in DeFi, things like Ramp, Vega, Quasar, um, but also increasingly doing what we call Web3 transformation. So working with companies that are you know, traditional companies or Web2 companies that want to start dipping their toe in Web3. Probably most famously, we worked on Sotheby's Web3 transformation. Um, they were on the Forbes list of 50 companies um, using, using crypto. They were on Times 100 list for you know how innovative they were starting their own NFT marketplace that's powered by our spin-out company, Mojito. Um, we worked with, uh, with Pace Gallery, another large gallery in the space, and a number of other um, big brands through Mojito. We've worked with you know, like the Milwaukee Bucks, helping them do their first NFTs. It's just been it's just been completely wild um, watching these newcomers come into our space and want to do it authentically the Web three way, which is what we offer. The one of the best ways over the years to bootstrap your project or your company or whatever it is, your exchange, anything, is with this the power of that community. We've talked about it a few times, like. Going in there, and it's one of the first things I do. It's like I'll go in, I look at a project. Uh, most people go and they look at the price of the coin, they look at things like that where it's traded. I look at what is their size of their Discord, what is the size of their Telegram, what is their contributions for for GitHub. There's a lot of metrics that my my uh, my analysts and I look at to get the real value of some of these things. Um, is that still the case? Is community as important if you're launching a new project now? Like if you're launching, if you're out there and you're 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 in the uh, I'm trying to think of like any other industry, basically any other industry, you're not focusing on starting like a Telegram chat room. Is that something people really need to be focusing right. on now? And kind of expand on that. It's it's a it's still uh, to the point where where the clients can call you and hire you if they want uh, if they need help doing these things. But help some of my listeners get from that like step zero to to, to like step. Point one or even point five. It's still, it, it's still very intimidating when you want to start uh, a, something in this space because it's still so new. When you go out there, and everyone else has this like epic amount of of followings already. Yeah, I mean, I would start from square one, which is what is community. I think so. In in a web two product, um, you get three distinct groups. One is builders or team. One is investors, and one is users. And those guys have misaligned interests. They have adversarial interests. The user wants the best possible product at the lowest price. The company wants to put as little work as possible into giving them you know, a product they'll accept. The investors want to you know, extract as much as they can value-wise from the company. There are all kinds of, there's all kinds of adversariality built into those relationships. What a Web3 community really is, is a collapse of those three groups, investor, builder, and user into a single economically aligned category called community. Because what Web3 really is, is a substrate for building incentive aligned systems so that people have a reason to collaborate with each other and coordinate with each other. And so the fundamental foundation for building a community in Web3 is building that incentive alignment between people. Let's say they all hold your token. Let's say they all hold your NFTs. 
they're incentivized to help you grow that community, whether as a builder, whether as an investor, whether as a user, and they expect to be rewarded for that. You aren't just a customer at arm's length. You're someone that expects to be rewarded for discovering a project early. So these categories really get blended. And a lot of the interactions that a community has right now are on a channel like Discord or on a channel like Twitter. And you can go look at that channel and see a number like, this is how many people are in it, which I would say is a bit of a surface level metric. And you want to actually look at the content of that community, right? If it's a bunch of people that are just speculators saying when moon, that might not be as powerful a community for the long-term growth of the value of that project. Or if it's a bunch of people that are only on the channel because they were offered some kind of reward, but then there's no ongoing plan to engage them, that's also a problem. So a lot of these communities, they know that investors are looking at just how many followers or how many Discord members. So they're either using bots, they're buying followers, they're using kind of these really cheap sort of reward programs as opposed to investing and really knowing their target audience, knowing who that is, creating a compelling message for them and delivering it to them on the channels where they live and using incentives, both intrinsic and extrinsic, to invite them into their communities and to really engage with them and start converting them toward using the product. You can see a community that looks like that. And I think regardless of number, that's way healthier than one that's just people asking when moon. So I think the content of the yeah. community in, in, in addition to those numbers is really important. Especially if we move away from like financial related stuff, um, that question of like when moon and things like that, like the token will be less of like a value that you're looking to speculate on and could be more of like a long-term thing. It's like a sneaker or something, or you collect or something that you may sell once a year or a trade or a nice watch. But and that kind of brings me into into something that I was actually thinking about the other day. I was looking at a chart, um, it's a crazy cool chart showing the top ten brands that are making money on NFTs right now, or just top ten companies. I saw making that money too. I I saw course. that too. I did an interview in Vogue about that. Um, it was uh, it was wild. It was like Nike and folks yeah, like Nike, uh, huge, all these big companies. Um, and so I'm wondering, and you know, a lot of these companies are your either clients or your potential clients, like. If Tiffany's, Gucci's, and some of the other ones, they seem like they're mm-hmm. they're getting it, but are they? And my question is more of like going back to what you said about the user, the the old system of like the user, the investor, then the builder, and now you have this like tokenized mechanism in between. I'm I'm just kind of thinking about like who at Nike is sitting there now that has to manage the supervision of this new community. What what is that like? Do these community folks? I think you'd be surprised. I, I think you'd be really surprised. I think um, there are a lot of brands and celebrities creating NFTs and shouting for attention, trying to round up newly rich crypto kids and sell them something and get, then get the heck out of there and just make a quick buck. I think there's a lot of that. Um, and that's a bummer. But I think among the companies that have actually done the best in the space, it's often because they've really gotten to understand the space. They've spent time thinking about what their DNA is of their own value prop and translating that into Web3. And they've pursued strategies that strengthen the uh, the Web3 community as their North Star rather than diverting um, energy and resources in another direction. So when we, when we work with um, traditional and Web2 companies getting into Web3, our North Star is always 
you need to have a long-term plan. You need to have a team that's going to be working on this, growing this community over the long haul. You've got to align with existing Web3 communities, influencers, creators, so that they're benefiting along with you. Um, and you've got to, you know, do something interesting. You've got to weave a kind of poetry between what's what people love about your brand today and what Web3 is actually made of and create something novel and new that that expands the capabilities of the space. Um, and we've seen that, right? So for example, Adidas, which was which was on that, um, on that chart, they partnered with the Board Ape Yacht Club when they were very early. They partnered with oh, yeah. Web3 native influencers like like G Money. Um, and and you see that these communities have actual staying power. There are people moderating them. There are people in them that are very excited. They look like um, native Web3 communities because they really are. Um, and you see a lot of brands and celebrities failing where they don't understand that. And they wonder, why are people not buying my NFTs? And the answer is because they're not treating it like real Web3. So how do we, as an investor and as investors, how do we find those companies? How do we look at those projects we can we can follow your characteristics we can look do you have a uh i should say do you have a client list that we can go on your website and look at those projects 100 percent. serotonin.co serotonin spelled like the neurotransmitter.co okay we're definitely going to go we're going to go take a look at it but you said you, you actually said something that piqued my interest about about weaving a narrative and that's kind of my job storytelling uh and i've tried to do that um in a timeline fashion, like we've taken with you going back a few years and kind of how you came to, to where you are today in the one hour that we have to do that. But is that still important? It, will there ever be a time where storytelling is not as important? To, to, are there storytellers in, uh, in the paper industry and are, listening, are people listening to the, to the podcast of those? Actually, I found out that, that there's a huge podcast for the Mets alumni. So if you were on the Mets, playing baseball, then you, there's like a whole podcast mm. dedicated to players who were formerly on the Mets who are now people want to listen to that. So I guess I'm answering my own question. Survival of my podcast depends <laughs> on this. So I think there will always be a marketing practice in web three, um, especially for earlier stage projects. Um, and I actually wrote a book recently, um, that's being published in the spring by Wiley called web three marketing. Um, where, where I lay a lot of this out, but basically the difference between marketing and storytelling in web two and web three is that in web two, when you're selling a product, it's just a margin exercise where you're trying to, um, make your lifetime customer value higher than your cost of customer acquisition. And you're paying these third party platforms like Google ads and like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera until you get that margin and your revenue just comes in that margin. With Web3 marketing, it's really much more sustainable because a lot of your narrative building activities are toward the beginning of projects in order to bootstrap demand and bootstrap that early community and refine that early messaging. And then ideally, if you've done proper kind of community incentive design, over time, you can pass off those activities to the community itself. And you don't really need, ideally, eventually, a centralized wow. marketing department anymore because the community is doing that in a sustainable, long-term, efficient, decentralized fashion all on its own. And we saw this happen with Ethereum, right? My team in Consensus, which was the first ever Web3 marketing team, was like a booster rocket for telling the story of Ethereum. You know, organizing 
the network of Ethereum meetup organizers, making sure they had money for beer and pizza, making sure they had a standard template for their presentations and that there were new projects coming through presenting at their at their meetup groups, doing a lot of that kind of early bootstrapping narrative building work. And then now I don't think Ethereum needs a marketing team. It has become, you know, a self a self-explaining, self-growing system based on incentives and based on that kernel yeah, of, you know, that escape velocity group of community members. And with every true Web3 project we work on, you've got to do a lot of work on messaging, on branding, content, community, social, PR, in order to get it off the ground. And then once it gets there, it's way more sustainable because you can hand it off. What do you think of the Ethereum merge happening in a few weeks? I mean, that's something that uh, has been talked about since the day Ethereum launched and moving over to proof of stake. It seems like the the conversation around it is is very developer led. A lot of people just kind of follow the, the developers on crypto Twitter. Are you happy about that? Do you think there could be a little bit better uh, information around what's happening? Yeah, I think um, so. The core dev call is an open call um, that anyone can join to get the updates from the developers that are working on the merge. Um, the language on that call is very technical. Um, yeah. I know there are a lot of great podcasts and newsletters that translate that technical information. Um, this week in Ethereum, uh, the Defiance, uh, the Bankless guys. Uh, I'm sure you know you spend a lot of time uh, translating this for your audience. So I, I think uh, CoinDesk, Decrypt. I, I think there are a lot of people trying yeah. to to translate that, and then there are a lot of people listening to those core dev calls. I think it's great that Ethereum should continue executing against its roadmap. I think obviously there's a lot of value on chain now, and so the risks are high, and it makes sense to do it well. If I had a choice, which I don't, between them doing it well and doing it quickly, I would choose uh, doing it well. Um, but I think they have that. I think they have that in mind. I'm excited for it to happen. Um, I think you know, especially as our industry has merged with arts and entertainment, um, we've intersected with more people that are concerned about the environment, and the proof of work narrative for Ethereum doesn't work for those people. And the proof of stake narrative does. And so if we're talking about narratives and adoption and the different industries that we're intersecting, this is going to be a lot better for Web3. I get it. I get it. A lot of people are very excited about it. And it actually just kind of makes me think how still early and new we are to our industry where it's like, you can have a job right there. If you're someone who understands Things on a on a greater technical level than myself, you can just be someone listening into these calls and writing articles, text, because our 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 industry is very still text and audio based. And I kind of like that. That follows the ethos. Even mm -hmm. like doing this show video, I've personally like pushed back on my producers so many times because I like doing audio shows only. And I think the audio and text is such a uh for our industry. But um, and that's a whole new we could talk about that for another hour. But Amanda, thank you so much for coming on, on Untold Stories today. You, you taught us a lot. Thank you so much for having me. And folks should feel free to get in touch if you want to hear more about serotonin or connect. Um, my email is just amanda at serotonin.co. Feel free to shoot me a note. And the website serotonin.co. We spun out a company last year called Mojito, leading NFT e-commerce platform, um, mojito.xyz. Check it all out.